Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. We're back with another episode of Creepscast, the podcast where your worst fears come to life. I'm your host, Mr. Creeps, and I'll be your guide on this journey through the twisted and macabre. So, lock the doors, turn down the lights, and get ready to be scared as we drift further into Mr. Creeps' mind. I thought I was lucky to survive the plane crash. I was wrong. Written by Horror Writer 1717. I looked out the window as the sun set over an endless sea of clouds floating below, looking every bit like I was sailing on my way to heaven. But inside the plane was a different story. I was sitting in premium economy class, translation, the cattle car with around an extra inch of legroom. As I glanced longingly up the aisle toward the first class section, a man who looked like he weighed easily 350 if not 400 pounds plopped into the seat next to me. I took a deep sigh. When he finally squeezed his way into the seat, he looked at me and smiled sheepishly. I'm sure that he was just as embarrassed as I was and sure that I would regret having the window seat when the horrible time came that I had to go to the bathroom. I was really wishing now that I had tried to get the company to spring for first class, but they wouldn't hear any of it. Premium economy was as high as they would go. I guess I see where their top salesman ranks. Okay, maybe not the top salesman, but I do sell some. I tried to settle in beside my new best buddy, knowing that it was going to be the longest nine-hour flight of my life. I spent the first hour trying in vain to get some work done on my laptop, but that was when my bladder betrayed me. I tried to ignore it and keep working for another half hour, but then it was time. I got an emergency notice from down below. Go to the bathroom or go in your pants. I surrendered and began the long process of trying to wake up the guy next to me. I nudged him and then pushed him and then I pinched him. Finally, he roused from his slumber like a sleeping dragon. Are we there already? He said, yawning. No, no, sorry. I have to use the bathroom. I said. Well, can't you hold it? He said. My mind ran through an entire list of expletives and different remarks that I would have loved to answer with. But in the end, I went with the one most likely not to get me eaten when I eventually tried to sleep. No, I can't hold it for another seven plus hours, I said, my voice dripping with sarcasm. He grunted and began the long process of getting out, as my bladder screamed for mercy. Finally, he stood and stepped into the aisle, knocking the hat off of the person sitting in front of us. Hey, watch it, bud, the man said. 
The man stepped aside and pointed at me as I tried to get around him to rush back towards the restroom. Both doors said, occupied. I tried the first door just to be sure. As someone's in here, a woman's voice sing-songed. I tried the second one. Can't you read? Came an irritated voice from inside the room. It's occupied. I stood there and endured the pain of an overfull bladder, having no other choice. I looked around to see if there was a garbage can with an empty soda bottle, but there wasn't. Just when I was sure my bladder was about to explode, I heard the latch open and a large man stepped out of the bathroom. He glared at me. You got a problem with letting people use the john in peace. Nope. I said as I dodged to past him and into the bathroom. I whipped around and I latched the door. Hey, the man said from the other side. I wasn't done talking to you. I ignored him as he pounded on the door. I was too busy relieving myself to pay attention until I heard. Well, I'll be waiting out here for ya. Great, I thought. Now some good old boy wants to kick my butt. I finished and I was about to flush when I paused instead. Maybe I can wait him out. I put the seat down and I sat. After a while, I looked at my watch and it had been about 10 minutes. Surely he would have been gone by now. I reached for the latch when I heard the other door open. Excuse me, ma'am. I heard him say as the woman in the other bathroom walked by. He was waiting and I was sure that it wasn't to say that he understood my urgency and wanted to apologize for taking so long. I sat back down and I contemplated my options. First, sit here for the rest of the flight. Second, go out and get my butt kicked. I didn't like either option. The plane suddenly rocked so hard that I was thrown against the wall. I saw stars. It took me a minute to recover and stand to go see what had happened when I was thrown against the wall again. This time, I nearly lost consciousness. I cautiously reached for the door handle when the third time was the charm. I hit the wall and the lights went out. I woke to cold water slapping me in the face. I thought that I had fallen asleep and it was a stewardess waking me up but the reality was much worse. There was water in the room and I'm not talking about a puddle on the floor. I'm talking about water halfway to the ceiling. I had my own pool for the first time in my life. Instant panic had set in. Had a water pipe burst. Had I bumped the sink before I went unconscious and I flooded the room. I didn't want to be responsible for the carpet cleaning cost. I reached for the door and tried to open it, but it was stuck. Was the big guy leaning against it, trying to teach me a lesson about being impatient? I pushed again and it gave a little. I planted my feet against the toilet and I shoved with all my might. Finally, the door came open. My worst nightmare couldn't be as bad as what I saw. There was water everywhere. The seats were covered and there was only a few feet of open air from the top of the seats to the ceiling of the plane. I saw heads bobbing above the water. I sloshed through and saw people still in their seatbelts unconscious. 
I unfastened those closest to me and saw that they had life preservers around their necks. I looked around for one for myself. I glanced over and there was the man next to me, still fastened into his seat, not moving. I shook him, but he didn't respond. I unfastened his seatbelt, but he was so wedged in he couldn't get a float out. I struggled to release him, but I realized that he hadn't moved the entire time. I checked for a pulse, but he was gone. I pulled the life preserver over his head and I put it on my own. I looked up the aisle and saw many more heads of bobbing. I also saw that the water had risen. Panic gripped me and I told myself that I was about to drown. I started swimming my way toward the front, hoping to find the emergency exit. On the way, I unlatched as many seatbelts as I could. All the passengers looked like they were unconscious, but just in case. I made it to the emergency door and I tried to open it. It was harder to open than the bathroom door. I pushed with all of my might and it barely budged. I wished that I had that big anchor guy with me right about now, but I was the only one that I had seen moving. A few of the passengers that I had released had floated toward me, but their eyes remained closed. For what seemed like hours, I struggled to open the emergency door to no avail. I had paused to take a breather when I heard a horrible sound. It was like a screeching and a stretching of something inhuman, like a monster in its death throes. I looked around trying to find the source of this horrible sound when I noticed the ceiling had begun to split apart above me. The screeching sound got louder as the water level rose. The front and back of the plane seemed to be taking on more water and I was standing right in the middle of it. The water level rose as the crack grew and my feet no longer touched the floor. The water had risen so high that my life preserver was floating me up towards the ceiling. The problem was, the ceiling was full of jagged edges, waiting to rip me to shreds. I rose, unable to stay down, going straight toward the sharp metal and plastic. Suddenly, the plane ripped in two, pulling the edges of the two sides away from me and shooting me up to the surface of the water. While the plane was dragged toward the bottom of the ocean, I bobbed up and down on the ocean waves and made worse by the displacement of water from a huge passenger plane. I looked around but it was dark and all I could see were stars and a thumbnail moon. I swished the water with my hand, moving in a circle but I couldn't see anything. The sea was pitch black with only a shimmer of moonlight reflecting off of it. I focused on the shimmer hoping to see something, a boat, a buoy, anything that might be in the water that could rescue me. After a while, I was about to give up when I saw something pass through the shimmer. It wasn't there for long and it wasn't very far from me. I started swimming toward it when a terrible thought had struck me. What if it was a shark? I stopped swimming and stayed as still as possible. My blood froze even though the water wasn't that cold. I had no idea where I was or where anybody else was, 
and I had no desire to become a snack. As these thoughts raced through my mind, making me want to jump out of the water and run toward the land, cartoon style, I felt something touch my leg. My body involuntarily made use of the endless bathroom that I was floating in. I didn't move. I used every ounce of determination, fueled by sheer terror to stay as still as possible. I waited for an eternity. Nothing happened. Just as I was about to breathe a sigh of relief, something touched me again. It was toying with me, tenderizing me, waiting for me to lose it and start thrashing around so that I could enjoy its meal. It bumped me again, this time on my head. Wait a minute, I thought. Sharks don't jump out of the water to get what's dirty in their reach. I took a deep breath around and turned to see what had been touching me. It was a fellow passenger floating in the life preserver. In fact, it was the man who had been in the bathroom. I breathed a sigh of relief. So you made it too, I said. The man stared at me silently. You're not still mad at me for that silly bathroom thing, are you? I said. Mia refused to speak. Let it go, man, I said. Be happy that we made it through this. His eyes penetrated mine. Fine, be mad if you want. And then he turned his eyes away from me and stared off into the distance. What? I said. What do you see? What's out there? I turned and scanned the horizon to see what it was that he had spotted. As hard as I looked, I didn't see a thing. What did you... I trailed off. He was gone. I was once again alone in a sea of darkness. I questioned if he had ever been there at all. What was happening to me? Was I losing my mind? As I questioned my sanity, I heard something off in the distance. I listened for a long time before I heard it again. It was a whistle, not like somebody whistling a tune but a plastic whistle someone would use to call for help. This stirred a memory, and I looked down on my life preserver, and sure enough, there was a plastic whistle attached to it. I pulled it free and began blowing it in answer. After several loud blasts, I waited. There was a whistle in answer. I began swimming toward where I had heard the sound. After a few minutes, I stopped to rest and I blew my whistle again. When the return whistle came, I was surprised to find the sound didn't come from in front of me, but off to my right. I must have gotten turned around somehow. I started swimming in the direction of the sound and I stopped to blow my whistle. Once again, the answering whistle didn't come from in front of me, but off to the left, almost behind me. Am I swimming too hard and going right past them? I decided to stay still for a few minutes and then blow my whistle. When the answer came, it was in a completely different spot. I tried to test my theory that it wasn't me that was moving. I stared in the direction of the last whistle and I waited for a minute. When the answering call came this time, it was behind me. 
The stranger thing was, it seemed like no matter what I did, the whistle never got any closer or further away. I was getting creeped out. I stopped whistling. After a while, I heard the whistle again, this time from in front of me. I refused to move or answer. And after a while, I heard it again, still in front of me. There was no doubt in my mind that somebody was playing games. My first and most obvious guess was the guy from the bathroom. He seemed like the kind to play mind games on someone. But would he go further? As far as I knew, we were in the ocean alone. I had no idea how many had made it out of the plane. But I was sure the guy wouldn't be able to convince them all to play along with his stupid little game when they were fearing for their lives. The darkness began to fade as the first vestiges of light fought against it, turning the sky a steel gray. The light brought me hope and would also bring me answers. This guy could hide and play games in the dark, but the light would reveal his deception. As the gray sky turned lighter and gave away to orange and then bright yellow, I saw dots all around on the surface of the water. I swam toward one and found it was another passenger. Glad to see you made it, I said. I was indisposed at the time. Any idea what happened? The woman looked back at me with empty eyes. Hello, I said, waving my hand in front of her face and snapping my fingers. She didn't respond. I reached over and felt her neck for a pulse, waiting to be slapped for being so forward. But the only slap that I received was reality. She had no pulse. She was dead. I felt helpless. I wanted to say something and do something, but there was nothing to be done. The woman slowly floated away from me. I looked around and saw several others bobbing in the water. There were at least a dozen. Hello? I called out. Is anybody else alive? My eyes searched the faces one by one, looking for any sign of a response, but I found none. Hopelessness turned to determination. This was something that I could do. I could check these people to see if they were sleeping or... I swam to the closest one and checked for a pulse. Nothing. I swam to the next and the next, and again, nothing. When I got done checking those that I had seen first, a few more popped up a little further away that I must have missed. I checked them all. Until I was done, I had discovered 32 people who had managed to get out of their seatbelts, only to perish some other way. The strange thing was, I didn't notice any obvious injuries. There were no head wounds that I saw, and no cloud of blood circling any of them. It was like they just gave up. I checked the last body, and to my astonishment, it was the man from the bathroom. The same one who had bumped into me last night. Had he been alive then? I thought so. But the more I replayed our encounter, the less I believed he had been alive. More than likely, he had just happened to bump into me as his dead body had floated in the water. As I was pondering this, I saw another body. I swam over to check it and then I stopped cold. I recognized the guy. 
It was someone that I had checked already, but that was impossible. I had checked him over a dozen bodies ago, had I gone in a circle. Everywhere that I looked, there was nothing but water. With no frame of reference and no land, I could have gotten turned around. And then I looked up. The sun was high in the sky. Once it started going down, I would have the ultimate reference. I couldn't possibly lose the sun. And then I saw dark clouds on the horizon reminding me how wrong I was. I hoped and wished and prayed for them to turn and go in another direction, but they didn't. Slowly, they approached like a blanket of doom. As I watched the approaching clouds, one of the people near me suddenly disappeared under the water. My eyes grew wide at this apparition. They didn't slip out of their life preserver. It would have stayed on the surface. I was fairly sure that it was in my imagination, but after the last few hours, I wasn't 100% sure of anything. I had to entertain the idea that I might be slipping into madness. I couldn't remember the last time that I had eaten or drank anything, and I was sure that I had swallowed minuscule amounts of seawater since the crash. Come to think of it, I had been feeling lethargic. I'm pretty sure that's one of the signs of seawater poisoning. Or it could be the fact that I hadn't slept in who knows how long. As these thoughts rolled through my mind, the passenger popped back up. He looked the same, but his head was tilted to the side a little bit. I wondered if I was just imagining it when I saw the water around him was tinged with red. It reminded me of that scene in Jaws where the sheriff sees the first shark attack with his own eyes, and the camera zoomed in on his shocked and horrified face. That's how I felt at that moment. Only I wasn't watching a movie. The danger was real and it was swimming right beside me. I looked around and spotted the first fin cruising ominously along the water among the bodies. It went under the water and soon another passenger dipped out of sight. She returned a few minutes later, also with her head listing on its side and a red tinge to the water surrounding her. The shark must have eaten part or most of their legs, disturbing the balance of the body that held them straight up. Panic consumed me. I tried to stay as still as possible knowing that sharks were attracted to movement. Every fact from every shark week I had ever watched rushed through my head. I turned as slowly as panic would allow, trying to keep track of the shark, when I caught sight of another fin and another. With red in the water, there was no doubt that it would become a feeding frenzy. As I wallowed in desperation, when I heard the whistle again off in the distance, this time it was no longer a mournful note. It was sharp and panicked. I started swimming toward the whistle slowly, trying not to make too much of a splash. The benefit was that I was swimming away from where these sharks were feeding. I started to feel relieved when I heard another salvo of whistles. It struck me how they seemed to convey a sense of alarm, even bordering on hysteria. Was I going from the proverbial frying pan to fire? Was the mysterious whistler being attacked by sharks too? 
or even worse, was there even anyone was slain? I had tried to get close to the whistles earlier, but I couldn't. No matter how hard I tried, was it some trick? Was there some creature alluring me to some horrible doom? I had heard stories of sirens leading men to their deaths. I wasn't sure if I believed such fairy tales or not. Although the longer I attempted to track down the mysterious whistle, the more my mind opened up to supernatural possibilities. It was almost a moot point. I was so tired. My arms felt like they were encased in concrete. Rescue seemed more unlikely by the moment. I stopped swimming because I desperately needed a break. I turned to look back at these swarm of fins amongst the red water and shreds of life preservers. I hoped that I was far enough away from the carnage to escape notice. I turned back to the shock of my life. Off in the distance, I could see something big. Was it an island? My mind screamed with joy, but then reality set in. How could I reach something so far away? My hopes came crashing down. I closed my eyes in despair. Hopelessness threatened to drown me long before the water could. When I opened my eyes, I knew that I was dreaming. The island had somehow gotten closer. I rubbed my eyes to make sure that I wasn't seeing things. When I opened them, sure enough, the island was even closer. This was it. I had lost my mind. I was delusional hearing and seeing things that weren't there. I knew then now that I was close to death. The island continued to grow larger, coming straight at me. I finally realized, though, that the island was a ship. I was saved. The ship continued to grow as it steamed straight toward me. I saw for the first time that it was an oil tanker, and it was about to hit me. My savior would be my doom. I resigned myself to the fact that I would survive a plane crash, be tormented by ghostly whistling, avoid being eaten by sharks, only to be run over by a ship that could save me. As a tear rolled down my cheek, I was deafened by a loud blast. The horns on the ship blew and I saw that it began to turn away from me. Even better, instead of dying, the ship would turn away from me without even knowing how close it was to rescuing me. As depression set in, I noticed the ship was slowing as it turned. Just before it got to me, it stopped. The waves slammed into me, threatening to pull me under. I waited and stared up at the massive side of the ship, looking like it was as tall as a skyscraper. Within minutes, I heard the whine of a smaller boat's engine. A man pulled up beside me in a boat. Are you alright? He said. I was so shocked and overjoyed that I couldn't speak. He grabbed me and helped me into the boat. Hey, are you okay? He said, looking into my eyes. Yeah, I managed to whisper, surprised at the raspiness of my voice. Is there anyone else here? He said. It took me a moment to think. I was following a whistle. He looked around and then started the boat off in another direction. 
Before I knew it, he had stopped and pulled somebody else out of the water. It was a woman that I didn't recognize. He sat her at the far end of the boat. Are you okay? He asked her. She looked at him with empty eyes but didn't answer. I could empathize with her. The shock of the last 24 hours must have rendered her mute. I saw the whistle in her hand and knew that she was the one that I had been chasing. Did you see anyone else? He asked her. She didn't look at him and said nothing. He hung his head and turned the boat to head back to the ship. When we got there, he hooked the boat onto wires that hung down and shouted up to the deck. The boat started rising and I knew that I was finally safe. The woman looked up for the first time. She looked at the man who had rescued us and grinned. There was something wrong with her grin. It was too big and there was no way her mouth could be human. Her teeth grew impossibly long and pointy and her face had turned green. Her clothes melted away into the form of some lizard fish looking creature. She dove at the man and sank her teeth into his neck. He screamed as she viciously attacked, ripping and tearing at his face, arms, and chest. It wasn't long until he was nothing but a lump of flesh. She turned to me and dove. Watching him being torn apart had given me a moment to acknowledge what had happened. I focused all my energy on one desperate plan. As she dove toward me, I kicked with all that I had. My foot impacted her face and changed her direction. Instead of diving at me, the kick had turned her and she sailed over the edge of the rising boat. I listened to the inhuman shriek as it fell all the way down to the water. I laid back in the boat exhausted, mentally and physically. I opened my eyes when I felt the boat lurch to a stop. The crewmen looked into the boat and recoiled as they saw the remains of their crewmate laying next to me. They all backed away and called for the captain. Once he had arrived and surveyed the scene, he ordered me to be taken to a room and cleaned up, and the remains to be removed. It was some time later after I had slept that there came a knock on the door. The captain came in and sat down beside my bed. Have you gotten some rest? He said. Yes, thank you. And thank you for rescuing me. Unfortunately, you can no longer thank the person responsible for your rescue. I don't understand. The man who came down on the boat is the one who spotted you in the water and called for the ship to stop. Oh. Would you like to tell me what happened? I sighed deeply. Where would you like me to start? The beginning is a good place. Can't sleep, waking up screaming. It might be the nightmares or maybe you're just on the wrong mattress. Ghost Bed is here to change that. For the last 20 plus years, the team behind Ghostbed has been designing comfortable mattresses that are built to last, and they are the experts when it comes to pairing customers with the right mattress, based on things like sleeping position, lifestyle, and more. Go to ghostbed.com today and take their online quiz to get your personalized recommendation within minutes. Want to talk to a real person instead? 
and ghost bed sleep experts can dive deeper into your needs and help you find the right match one-on-one. Orders ship free and fast, and you'll also get a 101-night sleep trial to make sure your mattress is the right fit for you. Also, if you're interested in bundling products, they're currently 50% off on site. Otherwise, use my specific code, Mr. Creeps, for 40% off site-wide. Again, visit ghostbed.com creepscast and use promo code Mr. Creeps at checkout to get 40% off mattresses plus get two luxury pillows and other freebies. That's www.ghostbed.com creepscast with promo code Mr. Creeps. There's a lady sitting in the tree across the street. There's something wrong with her. Written by Ghost at the Feast 22. She's been up there for the last few weeks now, but that's just when I first noticed her. She very well could have been up there for much longer. It certainly looks like it. I've called the police and the local news station and even the mayor's office, but not a single person would help. Oh, they were concerned at first. Then somebody would come out and walk over to the tree and look up. And within a minute or two, they would be walking right back to their car. Sometimes they would even run. It sounds absolutely absurd. A lady sitting in a tree in February. She's definitely not dressed for the weather. And normal people shouldn't be able to endure frigid temperatures like that, wearing nothing more than what looks like a filthy potato sack. But she has, and it doesn't seem to be bothering her at all. On the contrary, in fact, she seems to enjoy it. Look, I think I'm a reasonable guy who is fairly tolerant of his neighbors. I don't complain when the Missick's nine-year-old son took up playing the trumpet, one of music's loudest instruments. And when Mrs. Hedinger next door insisted that I remove my juniper bush because she was worried it might give her cat diarrhea, I did the neighborly thing and dug up the old bush and I tossed it out. I didn't even bat an eye when Ralph Larson down the street drove his golf cart into my mailbox last month. I just gritted my teeth and hauled away these splintered remains. My point is that I'm not some over-the-uptight person who expects perfection in those around him. I'm sure that I've done some things to annoy someone in the neighborhood at some point in the two years that I've lived here. I don't expect perfection, just normal behavior from my neighbors. But this, and whatever this is, is going a bit beyond anything that I would call normal. And no one seems to want to help. I guess it started a couple of weeks ago, but that's really just when I first noticed her up there. God knows how long she had been there before that. It was about 7 in the morning. I had walked out to my car, keys in hand. I was just opening the car door when I saw her. I didn't even know that it was her at the time. Just a splash of white that caught my eye. I stared up at the tree, squinting to focus on the spot amidst all the brown and an attempt to determine what it was. There was no real concern yet, just a vague sort of curiosity. I checked my watch, making sure that I wasn't running late before walking down my driveway toward the street. The tree is a massive thing, 
like most of the trees our little community is known for, standing directly across the street from my house and the little cul-de-sac. I stood on the sidewalk trying to see if I could get a good look at whatever it was without having across the street. But from my position, all I could see were brief glimpses between the thick branches. I sighed, and knowing if I didn't actually get eyes on whatever it was, it would bug me all day. For whatever reason, I had to know. I crossed the street and stood on the sidewalk for a few moments, shielding my eyes from the sun. Whatever it was, I couldn't see it through the thick branches and the brown decaying leaves. Staring up in the tree, I was immediately overcome with a feeling of an ease that I couldn't explain. But it was strong enough that I decided to forget the tree and I headed for my car. Once my back was to the tree, I had an intense urge to run, almost akin to when I was little and running up the basement steps. Sure, something was behind me, reaching out with mottled fingers, but I tried to ignore it. Just as I had reached my front walk, a sound broke through the quiet early morning, sharp and clear and unmistakable. Psst. Like a voice trying to get my attention. I stopped dead in my tracks. Without turning around, somehow I knew the voice was coming from that tree. Who cared about my pride? I ran then. Ran right to my car, fumbling to get the key in the lock. Before I got the door shut and locked behind me, I could have sworn that I heard another sound. Someone was laughing. That night, I didn't sleep soundly. I kept staring at my bedroom window imagining that I could see the tree swaying in the breeze, a drop of pale colored skin moving along with it as if waving. When the sun finally came up, I dressed quickly and I hurried across the street hoping that none of my neighbors could see me. Part of me chided myself for being irrational, but my legs continued moving nonetheless. I could hear birdsong and the faint hum of traffic in the distance. I pulled my jacket tighter around me as the chilly winter breeze whipped at my skin. I stood at the base of the tree and I looked up into it. The tree had lost most of its foliage due to the cold, but even though the tree was nearly barren, the many decaying leaves made it seem fuller, hiding the object pretty well. I positioned myself right under the thing and that's when I finally saw it. I'm not sure what I was expecting to see but it sure as heck wasn't that. A woman was sitting on a thick limb, about 50 feet from the ground. I stood gawking at her, trying to make some sense out of her presence there. She was staring straight ahead, unblinking, unmoving, wearing what looked like to be a tattered potato sack but it could have been the remains of a dirty old dress. Her thin bare legs dangled from the limb, twig-like and filthy. For a moment I thought that she was dead, but I could see her movements, however slight. I looked around the ground for a ladder or some other way that she had gotten up there, but there was none. I wasn't sure how the woman had gotten in the tree in the first place. The tree was in what you would call a typical climbing tree, it was much too wide around and the only reachable branches were too thin and spaced out, so climbing would be next to impossible for most people. The more that I thought about it, the more I began to think that it had to be some kind of prank, 
albeit a really strange one. Miss? I called up to her finally. Are you all right up there? Do you need some help getting down? If she had heard me, she showed no sign of it and continued to stare ahead blankly. She had to have been freezing considering the temperature. That dress she wore it couldn't possibly have offered any warmth. A few seconds passed, but the woman still didn't respond or acknowledge me at all. I was about to call her up again, but before I could, the lady made a noise. A strange, ragged, wheezing sound floated down to me, growing louder with each passing second. It took a minute for me to realize what the sound was, and for some reason it sent a chill through me. Laughing, like somebody trying and failing to suppress it. I took a step away from the tree, my instinct screaming at me to run. I had no explanation for this instant feeling of terror. All I knew was that something was terribly wrong with her. And before I could get my feet to move, the woman's head had shifted. She began to lean out over the limb that she sat perched on, her face tilting downwards ever so slowly, until she was staring down at me. She leaned so far over that I felt certain that she had fallen. At first, her face was blank, void of any emotion at all, but that changed in the blink of an eye, her lips stretching into a ghastly grin that somehow took up most of her ashen face, yet didn't reach her eyes. She was breathing in those shallow wheezes that became almost deafening, despite the nearly intimate quiet of our surroundings. Her hands were gripping the branches so hard that I could hear the bark ripping free, and see pieces drifting down to the ground where I stood. We both stared at one another for a long time before she suddenly opened her mouth, so wide that I thought her jaw might break, letting out a deep and raspy whine, and that's when I ran. I ran home and burst through my front door in a panic, slamming it behind me and locking both locks. Even that didn't seem like enough. I waited there with both hands on the door, waiting for the sound of a body ramming into it, but it didn't come. When I finally got myself under control, I risked a look out the window of my front door, but thankfully I couldn't see her. I didn't go to work that day. As silly as it may sound to you, I was afraid. Afraid of leaving my house. Afraid that I would hear that shallow, wheezing laugh and see her glaring through the branches at me. By mid-afternoon, that fear began to dwindle and I started to feel angry. Whether this was some weird joke, something stemming from a mental illness, or something else entirely, it made no difference to me. I was pissed at being made to feel terrified to leave my own house. I went to bed fuming, with plans to go right out there in the morning to have a chat with that lady, if she was still there. I didn't sleep well that night. My eyes kept drifting to the window, staring out at the darkness beyond the glass. I couldn't help but imagine the lady from the tree, with her dirty face pressed up against it. I woke the next morning before my alarm and I even beat the sun. I dressed quickly and drank my coffee while I waited for the sun to fully rise. By the time that it had, all of my bravado from the previous night had seemed to vanish. I stole a glance out of the living room window, but if the lady was still there, I couldn't see her. 
I ignored my trembling hand as I opened the door and made my way across the street. The branches swayed in the icy February wind that stung my face and crawled on my jacket. I stood a few feet from the base of the tree and I looked up into it. I didn't see her and I let myself relax slightly. I hoped the frigid temperatures had made her find a new spot. I took a step closer, but that's as far as I got, as the quiet was interrupted by a low growling coming from right above me. Before I could look up, I heard something crashing through the branches and smacking onto the frozen ground with a wet squelch, landing right in front of me. A dead squirrel lay at my feet, its fur soaked in blood and bits of flesh. It looked to be empty inside from what I could see, except for a few bones that helped to keep its shape. Even the eyes looked to be missing. I stared frozen at the partially devoured carcass in front of me, and then I heard a muffled yet familiar sound, laughing. I ran home without looking up, knowing that I would see her face grinning back at me. The next day was a Saturday and I vowed to do something about the lady in the tree. I was past the point of talking to her, and after the squirrel I was also no longer angry. I was disturbed. She was clearly suffering from a mental illness and needed some professional help. I did the only thing that I could think of and I called the police and I explained the situation. The dispatcher assured me that they would make sure the lady got the help that she needed. I stood by the door, occasionally peering through the blinds. The officers arrived about 20 minutes later, and from the little window above my door, I watched them walk straight towards the tree. They stood directly underneath and looked up into it. For a long moment, they just stared, as if confused at what they were seeing. Even from across the street, I could see their expression change, going from one of vague curiosity to completely unsettled. They shared a brief look of concern at one another before the female officer began talking up at the lady in the tree, shifting uncomfortably as she did so. She spoke for a few minutes and then the officer's unsettled expressions changed again to one of utter horror. The burly male officer jumped back from the tree as if he had been stung, quickly grabbing his partner by the elbow and pulling her with him. She didn't seem to protest this, and together they backed away from the tree, their hands hovering over their holsters and nearly falling over the curb. Once they reached the street, they both stopped and stared up at the tree, neither saying a word. Suddenly, there was a flash of movement from up in the tree, causing the branches to shake violently in the spot where I knew the lady sat. The officers spun around and booked it across the street to their car, their faces twisted with fright. I scrambled to unlock the door and I ran outside, calling out to them. They looked at me and for a second I thought that they might leave. I could tell that they wanted to. When they didn't, I jogged over to the car. Are you the person who called? The male officer had asked. From up close, I could see how pale they were, with sweat beating on their foreheads despite the cold. Yes, sir. Are you going to get her down from there? I asked, hopefully. The officer briefly glanced sideways at the tree, shuddering a bit before looking back at me. The fear in his eyes suddenly replaced by anger, 
Sir, this isn't an issue for the police. Go back inside your... He started, but I quickly cut him off. Not an issue for the police. Then whose issue would it be? I asked, shocked. The lady has been up there for God knows how long. She's clearly not in good shape. You saw what she was wearing. The female officer stepped forward threateningly. Sir, I'm going to need you to calm down, she said. The lady doesn't seem to want our help at the moment. She's content where she is and that is her right. She glared at me, her eyes begging me to push the issue. Um, but she can't possibly be well. You spoke to her for less than a minute. Shouldn't you at least have her checked out by a doctor? I said. The male officer stepped toward me, so close that I could smell the stale remnants of spearmint gum on his breath. He clenched his jaw, eyes narrowing as if he wanted to hit me. For a second, I thought that he might. She's a grown woman and is free to sit in a tree on public property if she likes. You don't own the tree, sir. And let me remind you that it is a crime to misuse 911. Now don't call us again about this, sir. We'll be coming to arrest you. They hopped in the car without another word and they sped off. I watched the car disappear down the road, completely baffled. I didn't look up at the tree. I didn't want to see her. But somehow I knew that she was there watching and maybe even laughing. I spent the rest of the day thinking about what I could do. I figured if the police wouldn't do their job, then I would find somebody who would. I called the local news station and told them about the woman and how terrible of a condition she looked to be in, as well as how the police came and went without doing a thing. The lady that I spoke with sounded appalled at the situation and promised to send somebody out to speak with me. They came the following afternoon, a lady reporter and a licensed psychologist. After speaking with me for a few minutes, they walked over to the tree. I watched them talking to the woman from my front porch, but I couldn't hear what they said. I could see all these smiles slid off their faces the moment they looked up into the branches. I could see how antsy they seemed as they spoke trying to convince the woman out of the tree. But just like the police officers, they didn't last for long. And three minutes later, and they were hurrying across the street, their expressions a look of sheer panic. They didn't even stop to speak with me. The cameraman almost knocked me over when I tried to talk to them, and all my calls to the news station afterward went unanswered. At a loss, I tried the mayor. I left numerous messages and finally got a response the next morning. The mayor's office sent somebody out later that day, a cocky little guy in a suit with slicked back hair and a sly grin that seemed a permanent fixture on his face. I tried to prepare him for what he would see, but he waved me off as if I were just being overdramatic, afraid of a mentally ill woman in a tree. She hasn't been violent at all, he asked, a sneer in his face that I wanted to slap. Well, no, not yet, I said through gritted teeth. So she just sits up there then, he asked. I could tell that he was thinking me a fool for being afraid of a woman who hadn't done anything to me. But he didn't know. He would, though. Like I said so far, she isn't well. She hasn't come down in days and she has to be freezing, I said. He nodded, bored. How do you know that she hasn't come down at all? 
Have you been watching her constantly? He asked, with that stupid grin again. No, not constantly, I said, but I think I would have noticed if she had been getting up and down. He looked down at his phone, pretending to listen. All right, sir, don't you worry. I'll go and have a talk with the lady. He strode across the street as though he were walking in a park, oblivious to what he was about to see. He looked up into the tree and that stupid smirk instantly fell from his face, his skin going pale. The longer that he stared, the worse he looked. His mouth went slack and his legs looked as if they were ready to buckle. All of a sudden, something dropped from the tree, something much too small for me to distinguish what it was. His hands flew to his face, frantically wiping at it. He fell back onto his butt and he scooted away from the tree. He ended up crawling on his hands and knees until he had reached the street. When he ran to his car, I could see his face was speckled with rusty brown spots. I watched him drive away, no longer surprised by that point. I felt completely dejected. Nobody wanted to be near the woman, so they just left her up there. Out of options, I did the only thing that I could and I tried to ignore her. It definitely wasn't as easy as you might think. I avoided going outside as much as possible and I never looked in the direction of the tree whenever I had to leave the house. The next couple of days were awful, but the nights were the worst. I was afraid to close my eyes as I lay in bed, always watching that window. I could see the start of frost at the corners of the glass, and as messed up as this sounds, it became my only solace that night. I pictured her up there on that limb, her bare feet and exposed skin slowly turning blue, and it made me feel a little better. I hoped that she would have one uncomfortable night out there and finally abandon the tree. I told myself that I did my part to try and help her, and if she eventually succumbed to the elements, that it wouldn't be on my conscience. As strange and unsettling as the woman was, she was still just a person with an obvious mental illness. I had a feeling that it wouldn't be long before there would be nothing but a body up in that tree. I hate to admit that, but part of me was looking forward to it, an end to this very disturbing ordeal. I was able to avoid the tree for the rest of the week, taking a few days off from work. I only went out to get the mail there if I desperately needed something from the store. Those brief moments out there with the tree looming across the street, the very air around me felt ominous. Look, I know that my fear may seem irrational. It's not like the woman had even done anything violent. She hadn't even left the tree. Technically, the only person that she was hurting was herself. I tried to tell myself that my fear was irrational. But on Monday, things took a turn for the worse. It was around noon that day when I had heard a knock. For a moment, I just stared at the door, imagining the lady from the tree standing on the other side. I hesitated, but as the knocking grew louder, more insistent, I finally made myself open it. Mrs. Hedinger stood on my porch, her hands on her hips. Didn't you hear me knocking, Michael? She snapped. I glanced over her head at the tree, and for a second I thought I saw a glimpse of flash peeking through the limbs, and I forced myself to look away. 
Sorry, Mrs. Hedinger, I was. You look terrible. Haven't you been to work? I haven't seen you leave in a few days, she said. I haven't been feeling well, actually, I said. She stepped back, eyeing me carefully. You aren't sick, are you? She asked. Because you legally have to tell me. Oh no, I don't have it. It's not that kind of sickness. I said, wanting to get rid of her and close the door as quickly as possible. She stepped forward, attempting to peer over my shoulder into my house. You're not drinking, are you? You know, my grandson has a drinking problem and he... Was there something that you needed? I asked, cutting her off. She gave a little huff, obviously displeased at my interruption. I was wondering if you had seen my cat, Thurston, she said dryly. He sometimes wanders over here and I've been calling him all day. I shook my head. No, sorry, I haven't seen him. But if I do, I'll... A loud meowing echoed from across the street. Mrs. Hedinger heard it too and turned around. Did you hear that? That's my Thurston. I know that cry anywhere, she said. She started down the porch steps, but I quickly grabbed her arm. Don't go over there, I whispered, as if the lady in the tree could hear me. What in God's name is wrong with you? She snapped, yanking her arm free. I'm sorry I didn't mean. Mrs. Hedinger, there's a lady in the tree over there, I said. What are you talking about? Are you drunk, Michael? She asked sharply. No, I don't drink. There is a lady in that tree. I've called the police and nobody will get her down. She isn't... She might be dangerous. I would stay away from her, I said. She huffed and looked towards the tree, squinting. Oh, she must be one of those addicts I hear about on the news every night. Probably up there smoking, she said, shaking her head disgusted. There's something very wrong with her, but I don't think she's on drugs, I said. You can't always tell who is and who isn't, Michael. My grandson ran with people like that. They seem fine until they show up at your house one day and all your spoons disappear, she said. I don't think it's drugs, I said again. Michael, sober women don't go climbing trees in the middle of February. She's on something and I'll be danged if I'm going to let her sit her bony butt up there while my cat has to breathe in her poison, she said. She hurried down the walk, ignoring my pleas. I know that I should have done more to stop her, but like the coward I am, I just ran inside and I locked the door. I watched her from my front door window, my heart hammering in my chest. She stood on the sidewalk just beneath the tree, staring up, one hand over her eyes. I couldn't see the lady in the tree, but I could tell that Mrs. Hedinger did. She looked surprised at first, but quickly recovered herself and began gesturing for the woman to come down. She spoke for a few minutes when she stopped suddenly, and a look of sheer terror washed over her face. Her mouth dropped open, and even from across the street, I could see her hands trembling. Branches began swaying high up, shaking so hard that leaves began raining down around Mrs. Hedinger's feet. When the tree stopped shaking, Mrs. Hedinger stepped closer to the trunk, so close that her body pressed up against it. I could see out her lips moving quickly, just before she began to climb the tree. I don't know how she did it with no reachable branches and at her age, 
but she somehow managed to shimmy up the tree, disappearing inside of the dying leaves. I waited for her to reemerge, but the minutes ticked by and there was no sign of her. I was just about to open the door when I finally saw her, climbing backwards down the tree. When she reached the bottom, she stood frozen, staring right at me, as if she could see me. I moved away from my window, contemplating calling the police again, even if it meant getting arrested. Something was very wrong. I risked another look out the window, and to my horror, Mrs. Hedinger was grinning, a smile so twisted and unlike her usual unpleasant expression that it made my skin crawl just to look at it. The moment my eyes fell on her, she began to shuffle across the street, her eyes locked on my house. I had no idea what I would do if she tried to get inside, but she never made it across the street. It all happened as if in slow motion. A black car came speeding down the street. The driver's face turned towards me, grinning wildly, a face that I recognized. The man from the mayor's office. His car slammed into Mrs. Hedinger, her body bouncing off the hood and onto the pavement with a sickening crunch. He drove right over her as he peeled out of the neighborhood, never stopping once. I ran out front but was unable to look at the broken remains of Mrs. Hedinger. I called 911 and her body was eventually taken away. Nobody cared about the lady in the tree though. They did however take down the info about the man from the mayor's office. I heard that he was found dead in his car by self-inflicted wounds just a few miles away. I overheard one of the officers claiming that they had found him smiling. I stayed in my house for the weekend, thinking seriously about moving. Yesterday, when I went into my upstairs bathroom, I couldn't help but wonder if she was still there. I was hopeful that maybe, just maybe, she had finally left. I carefully looked out the window at the general spot where I thought she had sat. The sun had already begun to set, but the streetlight across the street illuminated the tree well enough. My eyes scanned the branches for her but the distance made it difficult. Just as I was about to give up, I saw it. High up in the tree, almost nearing the very top, a face appeared through the branches, that same dirty, smiling face. It was too far to make out her features, but I could see her and I knew that she was smiling. But the worst part was that I knew she was smiling at me. I yanked myself away from the window, heart racing. From the distance and the angle, it was hard to judge whether she was actually looking in this direction, but it sure as heck looked like it. I could have ignored it, but I had to know. I had to know if she was watching me, even from all the way across the street. Something that should have been impossible. I ran to the other end of my house to my office, dropped to the floor, and I army crawled to the window. I got into a crouched position and very carefully lifted the curtain, and I poked just my eyes up over the windowsill. The tree was a bit closer to my office than my bathroom, but the angle was slightly different. I scanned the top of the tree, but thankfully I didn't see anything that shouldn't have been there. I was examining every branch when my breath suddenly stopped. Halfway down the tree, the lady's face protruded through the branches smiling and deranged.
She seemed to be bobbing up and down like an excited child. I watched her, mentally telling myself that she couldn't possibly see me or know where I was. As if she could read my thoughts, her thin arm shot out from the branches and began frantically waving at me. I scrambled away and I sat in the hall where there were no windows. I tried understanding how she had done it, but I couldn't figure out how she would have known where I was. I came up with the conclusion that I must have given myself away somehow, moved the curtain or something. I went downstairs, sticking to the walls and away from any windows. I took my time and I crawled to the window in the living room, and without touching the curtain I peeked out through the slight gap at the corner. It took me a few seconds to find her, but when I did, I had to stifle the scream. She had moved, now perched on a limb about 20 feet high. Her neck stretched out so that her entire head jutted out through the leaves. She was smiling even wider if that was possible, with one arm sticking straight out and one finger pointing straight at me. I flattened myself against the wall, my chest heaving. I felt dizzy with panic and... I had to bite my lip to keep me from screaming. Maybe my fear seems unwarranted to you, but it wasn't just her presence in the tree or even her disturbing behavior that terrified me. There was a sense of very real danger when you were near her, when you looked at her, a feeling that this lady could hurt you and she would enjoy it. As quietly and carefully as I could, I snuck down my basement steps, leaving the lights off. The window was high up on the wall and I had to stand on some dusty boxes to be able to fully reach it. I had made little to no sound, certainly nothing that she could hear. I was sure of that. I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to see her in the dwindling light, but I needed to try. I didn't know whether she was somehow able to anticipate where I would be. I stood up onto the boxes and I cupped my hands around my eyes pressing my face up against the glass. I'm writing this all out from my bathroom. I didn't stare too long out of the basement window because, at first, all I could see was my own vague, wide-eyed reflection staring back at me. Except after a moment, I realized that the wide-eyed face gazing back wasn't my own and it was grinning. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I found a gas station that shouldn't exist. It seems to go on forever. Written by CIA Herb.
on my way home from work, I noticed a gas station that shouldn't be there. I had driven home this way a hundred of times and there was never a gas station there before. I nudged my best friend Adam who I had carpooled to work with and he woke up immediately. Huh, what? He said groggily and I slowed down the car pointing my finger. That gas station doesn't belong here, I said pointing. Yeah, I guess not. And prepared to go back to sleep. I nudged him again. Let's go check it out. It says 24 hours on it. I said. He yawned and then nodded his head. Alright, sure, if it'll make you leave me alone so I can get some sleep. I'll go and check it out with you, he said, feeling around his pockets for some tobacco. I'm not sure what you're so excited about it for. It's just a gas station. He always hand-rolled his own cigarettes on the spot even putting a little menthol filter into the rolling paper. He lit up the Turkish tobacco, waking up instantly as the sweet smell of it drifted through the car. Well, it's a gas station that wasn't there yesterday, I pointed out. How did it go up so fast? That's not even physically possible. Oh, clearly it is because it's there, he pointed out. I pulled into the parking lot, looking at the sign. Sets 24-hour service. It read simply. The bright fluorescent lights flickered as we pulled up to a pump and got out. Adam grabbing his nearly empty backpack and putting it on without thinking. And then grabbing his keys with a detachable pepper spray canister, his lighter and some tobacco. Something skittered behind the gas station, just out of reach of the lights. A sudden smell of sulfur and rotty meat wafted over to us, making me gag. Oh, bro, Adam said, covering his mouth and nose with his hand. That is just terrible. I nodded, putting my face in the crook of my elbow, trying not to breathe the disgusting fumes. We both walked quickly towards the door, opening it up and going inside. Instantly, the smell was gone. As the door closed behind me, I realized that this was not a normal gas station. Row after row of mannequin heads were lined up in the aisle in front of me, as if they were all for sale. Some of them looked like they had actual human eyes inserted into the plastic. Bits of red still dribbled down them from the eyes. One had its mouth open, a bloody tongue inserted into the silently screaming statue. Whoa, that is awesome, Adam said, pointing to the mannequins as if they were Halloween decorations. I grabbed his arm. I think we need to get out of here, I said, a rising sense of trepidation sending off alarm bells in my head. It's only decorations, man, Adam said laughing. Clearly this is some sort of Halloween store or something. Kind of out of season though. He shrugged. I shook my head and tried backing up towards the door. Turning around, I realized that it had locked behind us. I tried pulling it with all my might, looking for any locks or buttons near it, but there was nothing. It had metal bar after metal bar crisscrossing it vertically and horizontally, as if to keep vandals out, or to keep unwilling hostages in. We're locked in, I said simply, my voice wavering. 
This isn't right, Adam. We need to get out of here. The panic in my voice seemed to wake him up to our situation, but he still tried to pretend like this was just a normal store. We just need to find somebody that works here, he said calmly. They probably locked it by mistake. We both began looking around and I realized that the store looked much larger on the inside than it did from the outside. There, he said, pointing to a glass case on the far side of the store. A man stood there with dark, nearly black eyes, staring at us from inside the bulletproof glass partition. We walked over. I noticed row after row of horrors on our way. One aisle had what looked like medieval devices, all dripping red and covered in it. I even saw what looked like intestines wrapped around some metal spikes, with a handle to turn the metal that apparently draw the intestines out of somebody. The next row was taxidermied animals, well at least at first. There were foxes, cats, dogs, and beavers, all frozen in ferocious positions their eyes wild and their teeth bared. As I looked farther down, I saw the bodies of people frozen in eternal screams of horror, still wearing their dresses or suits. The heads of men and women were also taxidermied and set side by side on the aisles, all cast with different expressions, some of them smiling, some shrieking, some just staring blankly ahead with dull eyes. I stopped looking down the aisles after that. May I help you? The cleric said through the holes in the plastic as we neared. His dead eyes stared at Adam before flicking over to me. I think we're locked in, I said, my voice weak. The man's eyes had never left mine. I looked down at my hands. The only way out is further in. He pointed to the back of the store. The way you exit is not the way you enter. It is below. What is this, some sort of riddle? Adam asked, fuming. Just let us out of here, man. We don't want to buy any of your weird stuff. Who the heck wants to buy a bunch of mannequin heads or taxidermied beavers and a cat of nine tails? The clerk just stared at Adam with his black eyes. Look, if you're not going to let us out, I'm going to smash my way out. The clerk smiled at this but said nothing. Adam shrugged and went to the medieval devices aisle. I found it odd that they sold all these random horrifying objects, but I didn't see any food, snacks, or drinks in the entire place. Perhaps those were all further ahead in some spot that we hadn't discovered yet. Adam grabbed a mace, a thick piece of polished wood with a spiked metal ball on the end. He went over to the door that we came in through and with one final glance back at the clerk. He began smashing the maze as hard as he could into the glass panels of the entryway. He quickly found out that it was made of some sort of shatterproof plexiglass. The first swing reverberated painfully back into his arm, causing him to nearly drop the maze. Then he moved over to the windows and tried smashing those out, with the same result. I checked my phone for service to see if I could call the police, but all the metal and bulletproof glass apparently affected the signal. I had zero reception inside the station. It looked more and more like we were going to have to play the clerk's little game. 
we would have to go deeper inside to find a way out, as he had told us. I was quickly regretting ever stepping foot in this bizarre place. Adam massaged his right arm painfully, the shockwaves from hitting the unbreakable glass having clearly caused some minor aches, but he still held the mace in one hand. You better grab a weapon too, Adam said to me, his eyes serious. His normal joking manner totally dissipated. We have no idea what this place is, but I think it's better safe than sorry. I nodded, going to the medieval devices and the weapons aisle, picking up a scimitar. The curved sword felt somehow comfortable in my hand, the weight of the metal blade perfectly balanced. I gave it a few practice swings and then turned back to him. Well, let's get going, I said. We began walking down an aisle with books wrapped in some white leathery substance that looked suspiciously like human skin. I eyed them with distaste as we passed. I saw the Necronomicon, the Shadows of Solomon, the Malice Maleficarum, the Wiccan Book of Shadows, and many other tomes that I didn't recognize. Some weren't even written in the Latin alphabet but looked as if they were Tibetan or Sanskrit titles instead. Adam stopped, grabbing a random grimoire that had caught his attention. On the front, it simply read, The Angel of Death, in huge silver letters. The book itself was shiny and black like a poisonous snake. A blood-red eye stared out from the bottom of it, and I saw that it dripped blood continuously, as if the book itself was crying. He tucked it into his backpack. What are we going to do with that? I asked nervously, and he shrugged. My gut told me to take it. I don't know why. Maybe if we stop, I can look at it closer. As we neared the back of the massive store, which was bigger than any department store that I had ever been in, I began to smell the rotting meat and sulfur once again. I looked around warily. You've got your game face on, bro, Adam asked me, also smelling the nauseating mixture. I nodded grimly. We both had our medieval weapons out and ready to swing at anything that came near us. But nothing attacked. Instead, we saw a black silhouette in the back, next to a flight of stairs leading downwards. As we got closer, the features of the silhouette became clearer. It stood over ten feet tall, nearly scraping its head on the ceiling. It had a shimmering reptilian skin, with dark red claws on its hands and feet, but its most distinctive feature were its eyes. They glowed like embers, brightening and dimming with every passing second as the creature stared us down. Its hairless face had tiny slits for its nose and ears, and a lipless black mouth that formed a perfectly straight line. Adam went first, looking up at the creature suspiciously. This is the way, friends. It said to us in a guttural, cracking voice, gesturing with a clawed hand to the stairway. I will see you again further in, in the space where the light grows cold and distant. My name is Set, and I greet all the fighters up above, as above, so below. As he spoke, he began to walk backwards and he faded into the wall. 
until only his glowing ember eyes remained watching our every move. Adam went first, walking very softly and giving furtive glances to the eyes seemingly embedded into the wall. I walked behind. The stairway smelled musty and ancient, reminded me of the times that I had visited the catacombs in Paris, and it descended for what looked like dozens of stories, tiny cramped steps disappearing into the dark far below. We used our cell phones for light, going slow so as to not slip. It would be a very long and lengthy lethal fall to the bottom. The lower we went, the colder it became, until I could see my breath in the dim light of the phone. There was no hand roll or anything to grab if I slipped. The wall was smooth as sandstone, and as we went lower, many of the stairs were crumbling. My fear of heights made me start to hyperventilate, until Adam turned and calmed me down. Just focus on one step at a time, he said. Don't look beyond that. After what felt like an eternity, we reached a long hallway. We sped up, walking through it. It opened like a huge antechamber, the size of a football stadium. As soon as we stepped foot into it, a stone door slammed shut behind us, keeping us from going back the way that we had come. Both of us jumped at the loud slamming sound turning abruptly. From behind me, a thin hand grabbed my hair retching my head back and putting a cold metal blade to my throat. Adam raised his weapon, but the man behind me simply laughed. His breath smelled like he was rotting from the inside. Combined with the intense odor of sweat, it emanated off of him and it made me want to gag. But I knew that I couldn't move a single millimeter with that sharp knife pressing into my jugular. And put your weapon down, mate. The man said in an Australian accent, Both of you. I dropped my sword on the floor with a loud echoing clatter, and Adam immediately dropped his mace on the ground, putting his hands up to show that they were empty. Don't kill him, Adam said. We've done nothing to you. The man laughed. Do you know where you are? He said. It doesn't matter what you've done or not done. This is a place of death. No one leaves here alive. The tip of the blade pressed into my skin and I felt a few drops of blood begin to run down my neck. Both of you move forward. We began to walk into the huge chamber. Torches flickered on the walls. Up ahead, I heard the insane laughter of a woman. Finger painting, finger painting, just like when I was a kid. She said also in a deep Australian accent. The insane rambling echoed back to us, and I could barely tell where it was coming from. After what felt like an eternity, I saw an emaciated, sickly-looking young woman. She appeared to be of mixed race with tan skinned and long hair. She wore the remnants of rags on her thin body. She reminded me of videos of camp survivors that I had seen. I could count every one of her ribs. Next to her, she had a cooked strip of skin and occasionally stopped and took a bite out of it, smiling and cooing with pleasure at the taste. Long pork, she whispered and then laughed. The smell of rot was overwhelming. It was so thick that I felt like I could taste it. 
I could see bodies strewn around her. She had cut off their fingers and was using the thick, clotting red to attach them to the walls. I saw dozens of fingers forming random patterns all up and down the wall. Some of them were so old that the skin was falling off, the nails having turned black or purple from the decay. We got some fresh meat, baby girl, the man said with an insane laugh. The woman turned to look at us and I could see in her eyes that she was totally insane as well. She barely focused on anything for more than a second. Her eyes flitted around randomly, as if she was seeing things moving all around us that weren't there. The bodies around her had already been stripped, and it seemed clear that they had been eating pieces from all of them. The waves of nausea and sickness in my stomach only grew worse. But then out of nowhere, what sounded like a tornado siren began to sound. I felt the knife loosen slightly around my throat, and the woman looked up, shrieking in horror. No, not again, she said. Adam noticed the distraction, his eyes meeting mine. He nodded, reaching into his pocket. Down, Adam shrieked, and I grabbed the man's hand, forcing it further away from my throat with all my strength, and then I fell to the floor. At the same instant, Adam took out the police mace from his pocket and began spraying it in a concentrated stream into the insane Aussie's face. The lunatic screamed and fell, dropping the knife as I crawled away on the disgusting floor. Within a space of seconds, my clothes and skin were covered. I gagged, trying not to throw up. The woman ran over to the man, trying to pull him up. They're coming, they're coming, she said. But he was in such bad pain that he couldn't even open his eyes, less likely to run from whatever horrors existed at these lower levels. Adam wrenched the knife from the man's hand, kicking him a few times for good measure, and then turned to the woman. She barely weighed a hundred pounds from the look of her, and it wasn't hard to overpower her. Lead us out of here, you nut job, he said to her and she began screaming. No time, no time. We can't leave my daddy, she wept, the tears forming lines between the dirt and what was caking her face. Adam stuck the knife into her back for good measure and she yelped. Lead us out of here or you'll be dead, he said. She nodded, her crying stopping abruptly, then pointed to a small opening in the wall further down, past the pile of bodies that had surrounded her. Adam let her go and she began to run, both of us closely following. I heard a cacophony of fluttering wings and saw what looked like huge dragonflies descending from further down the chamber. All three of us ran into the opening just as they had passed us by, the swarm focusing on the crying man as he tried to get to his feet and follow us. With a scream like somebody being burned alive, I heard them swarm all over him. A few of the dragonfly-like bees followed us down the tunnel, and I felt a stinging sensation, like burning fire as one of them bit me in the back of the neck. I slapped at it, feeling a stinger hit my hand directly in the center of my left palm. It began to swell, and it took everything that I had in me to not scream. I grabbed the thing and I pulled it in front of me, and with horror, I realized that it had a tiny human-like face on it. The face had no eyebrows or hair, but it was forced into a perpetual scream. 
I threw it on the ground and I stomped on it. Run, I said, and we sprinted away. The screams of the man following us down the tunnel. It split off at various points, but the insane woman seemed to know where she was going, taking a left and then the next right. Soon, we could see the light of the sun ahead of us. We emerged into a massive courtyard. The walls stood hundreds of feet tall and creatures in cages lined them. Some of them looked like they had been fused together from multiple bodies. Others looked like men and women dressed in suits or hiking clothes, but their faces were totally blank, with no hair, eyes, ears, or mouth. Their heads turned to watch us as we passed, however. The insane woman started crying. Don't want to be here. Don't want to be here, she said. Ah, shut up, Adam said to her. He looked at me. So what now? I pulled out my phone and tried calling the police, but there was no ability to call their text. But an open Wi-Fi network came through reading. Sets, a full service station. I tried to open up websites for the FBI or police agencies to call for help, but they were all blocked. Yet I was able to access this site, and so I started writing up my story. I know that there's only one way out and that's further in. That is, if Set wasn't lying to us, the horrors that await us seem like they will only grow worse. As my friend Adam and I stood in the gargantuan courtyard, surrounded by hundreds of monstrous beings in cages, we wondered what we should do next. We looked at the insane woman. Her dark hair hung in matted, bloody strings around her face, and her eyes were hollow and blank. She looked past us with a thousand-yard stare. Adam walked up to her, standing only a foot away from him so she couldn't look past him. What's your name? He asked softly. She muttered to herself, but I couldn't hear what she was saying. He pointed at me. This is my friend Jerry and my name is Adam. She suddenly sprang to attention, her lifeless doll eyes meeting his gaze. A fleeting moment of lucidity and sanity seemed to return to her. My name is Mary and you killed my father. Adam shook his head. Technically, those mutant bugs killed your father, we responded. And that was only after you guys tried to take us and eat us. At least I assume that was what your final goal was. He said this in such a deadpan, emotionless way that I had to resist the urge to laugh. But I think we need to focus on the present issue. Where are we? He pointed around at the creatures in the cages. Many of them looked at us, at least with those eyes. Some looked human, but had no hair, eyes, or mouth, a nose or ears on their heads. They seemed to breathe through their skin. A slight expansion and contraction rippling through their body every few moments. Unexpectedly, with a loud clattering that echoed off the walls of the courtyard, three teenagers came running through a small tunnel on the other end of the room. I hadn't noticed the tunnel entrance, as it was hidden from my view by closely spaced cages. One of the kids had deep claw marks down his chest, 
His t-shirt was in tatters and blood ran in rivulets down the white cloth, turning it into a deep red. The two girls behind him were breathing hard, their eyes wide, looking behind them every few seconds. And then they saw us before noticing all the creatures in cages all around the courtyard, and they went as still as statues. The insane woman, Mary, took advantage of the moment of distraction and ran away, back in the direction that we had come. Dang, Adam said, about to sprint after her. I put my hand on his shoulder. Let her go, I said. Realistically, what are we going to do? We either have to keep her around, which means having to constantly watch a lunatic, who would kill us in a second, or we would have to tie her up or even do the same to her. None of those are good choices, and I don't even want the blood of a lunatic on my hands if I can help it. It's probably just better to let her go. And of course, I had a feeling that we would be seeing her again, though I didn't say this out loud. The teenage boy with the shirt walked forward, putting his hands out to show that he was unarmed. Adam kept the knife in his right hand and covertly shoved his keys with the police mace towards me with his other hand. I took them, turning the nozzle to the firing position, so at least we would have one ranged weapon to gain an advantage if this group turned out to be as insane as Mary and her father. But as they inched closer, I realized they were just scared kids. I stepped forward, putting the keys in my pocket and showing them my hands. We're not going to hurt you, I said loudly, my voice echoing through the courtyard. The monster nearest to me, a man in a surgeon's uniform with pure white cataract-covered eyes, stared towards me, agitated by my yelling. Where do you come from? We found this place in Florida, the boy said, walking forward and wincing as he wiped his hand across the deep cuts on his chest. Then we found it in Massachusetts, Adam said. Was it a random-looking gas station that appeared out of nowhere? The boy looked uncertain. Well, we had never been in that part of Florida before, he said. It was a road trip across the states. We were going to Universal and Disney World and got a little bit lost. We were low on gas and found a 24-hour station in the middle of a swamp on some dirt road with no houses around for miles. I thought that it was weird, but beggars can't be choosers, right? We went inside to pay and the doors locked behind us. I nodded. Yeah, mostly the same story for us, I said. Except I know for a fact that this gas station showed up in less than a day. For all I know, it may have just appeared in seconds. And I'm willing to bet if we talked to more people here, they would have similar stories except they all probably came from different locations. The last group that we ran into sounded like they had Australian accents, and I would be willing to bet that if we went further in, we would find people from all over. This thing must be showing up randomly across the world and letting people in. It's like a lobster trap. Once you get in, you can't get out, but you have to keep going deeper and deeper inside to look for a way out. Until what? Adam said. The lobster fisherman catches us and lets us out. I laughed. The fishermen only let the lobsters out when they're ready to boil them alive. I said, and he frowned at this. Do you guys have any weapons? 
One of the girls interrupted. She was a short and skinny redhead. Adam pointed back the way that we had come. There are a couple weapons back in the chamber there, but I wouldn't head that way, he said. There were bugs who eat people alive. But somehow there was a warning first, almost like a trap had been set off. It sounded like a tornado siren or something. She nodded. Yeah, it was the same with us. We took the stairs down and ended up finding a small tunnel immediately off to the left under the torches. As soon as Jason had stepped past the first stone, though, the wailing sound had started, and something came out of the walls. The boy named Jason continued her story. It was all hunched over and it looked like there was a secret trap door built into the wall, and then a smell like sulfur and roadkill came out, like a wave of stench and it took these huge claws and swiped my chest. He lifted his shirt and I gasped. The blood hadn't started to clot, but still kept running down in streams. He must have lost quite a bit by this point, but the adrenaline seemed to keep him going. Black and purple lines went out from the cuts in all directions, reminding me of a wound that had gone septic. As I watched, I could see it worsen moment by moment. Pieces of his skin began to fall off, bones morphing and ripping through his clothes. God, it hurts. Please, something is wrong, Jason said, reaching out towards me. Droplets began to fall from his right eye and then his left one, and he started screaming as his body began to transform into something else. The third girl in the group, a tall brunette teenager, began to point behind Jason and scream. I saw a glimpse of a shorter, red-headed teenage girl, identical to the one in the group, except this one was missing multiple fingers, and her clothes were all torn as well. Blood poured out of her hand where the stumps of the fingers reflexively tightened and loosened on nothing. She looked like she had been stung over and over, her face swollen. The doppelganger looked at the whole one in shock as Jason fell to the floor. His scream stopped with the pieces of bone had started to grow out of his back. He writhed and seized, his eyes rolling into the back of his head and coming back to focus on me a couple more times. Who are you? The injured redhead said to the uninjured one, who showed an ear-to-ear -ear grin and began to float above the ground. Her eyes had turned red like flaming embers, and her skin began to rapidly darken into a black sheen. Her body grew, the legs and arms lengthening as all the clothes began to be reabsorbed inside the body of the monster. The injured girl screamed as a floating set reached out his arm towards her, softly rubbing the side of her swollen cheek before quickly grabbing her by the jaw and snapping her. The sound of the bone fracturing and the look of horror and torment in that girl's eyes were haunting. The brunette girl had used the distraction to run over next to Adam and me. Sat turned his gaze back towards us, ignoring Jason who was still having a seizure on the ground, spitting out foam. You both intrigued me, he said to Adam and me in a guttural tone. It seemed to come from the walls around us as well as his reptilian mouth. But especially you, he said, pointing to me. 
I will make a deal with you, Jerry. You give me your soul and I will tell you the way to the exit at the center of the labyrinth. I shook my head at this. How about you go screw yourself? I said, spiteful. Sad only laughed. Behind him, Jason had stopped seizing and now looked to be either unconscious or gone. Well, in that case, said Sad, out of a spirit of fairness, I will give you three survivors a five-minute head start before. He pointed to the cages around us at the sides of the courtyard, smiling. The brunette girl gasped, her mouth a small O of fear. You wouldn't, she said, starting to cry. Set laughed at this and put his hands up towards the sky. Adam grabbed one of her hands and they followed my lead as I sprinted towards the tunnel that Mary had taken earlier. I hoped that maybe we could find her again and force her to show us the way towards the center of this maze of horrors where Set had claimed freedom lay. As we ran into the dark, cramped tunnels, glowing symbols that hadn't been there before began to illuminate the path in front of us. We came out to the massive chamber where we found Mary weeping over the body of her father. Her clothes were in tatters and her back scarred with countless tiny symbols that had been engraved into her skin. They reminded me of Tibetan scripts that I had seen or the constructed elvish language in Lord of the Rings. The body of her father was swollen to twice its normal size, small dribbles of a clotted red coming out of his face, ears, nose, and mouth. I saw hundreds of the human-faced insects around his body. Many of them crushed or their wings ripped off. It looked as if he had gone down fighting. I wondered where the mutated bugs had gone, but time was running short and I knew that that would be a mystery better left for another time. Adam grabbed Mary by the shoulder and rapidly explained the situation. Her eyes dried up and even though she seemed to look past us at invisible shadow people or whatever other hallucination or insane mind made up, she understood enough of it. And then Seth's voice echoed all around us, coming from nowhere and everywhere. Time is up, friends, he said, a tone of glee and amusement in his voice. Open the cages, release the wanderers. From very far off, I heard metal doors slamming open, and I knew that we had to act. Mary, show us the way to the safest room you know, I said. We need time to think and, except at that moment, time had run out. We had encountered on the demonic form of Jason, tearing out of the darkness at a superhuman speed and jumping on the brunette girl. He began to slash and rip at her with huge black talons. His body was hunched, spikes sticking out of his spine. His lips were missing, showing huge bloody teeth instead, and his eyes and skin had turned a pure sickly white. The deep claw marks on his chest totally healed now. Adam tried stabbing at the monster with his small dagger, but then I remembered that we had weapons only a few feet away, where we had first been abducted. I ran towards the door, grabbing my scimitar. As the monster was focused on ripping the brunette girl to pieces, I came up from behind it and swung as hard as I could, 
Time seemed to slow down as the sordid connected with its knack, and the inertia took it deeper and deeper. The monster uttering a final shriek that was cut off at the same time as its throat was severed. The head fell to the floor, the white eyes still looking up at me with hatred, the lipless mouth still opening and closing, like a fish suffocating on land. The limp body of the monster fell backwards, showing the damage to the girl beneath. She was not yet dead. I knew that it was only a matter of moments, though. Her throat had been slashed and pieces of skin on her chest were missing, and I could see spurts of bright red exiting out of a dozen deep gashes every time that her heart beat. She tried to speak, but she only choked on her own words. She died with her eyes open, staring in fear and horror. We have to go, Adam said, pulling on my arm. I saw that he had gone and grabbed his maze from in front of the locked door 20 feet away, and I realized that he was right. I could hear footsteps approaching down the same tunnel that we had taken. Mary was clearly agitated even more than usual, and was gibbering and saying something unrecognizable. Adam prodded her in the back, whispered something to her, and she nodded and began running. We both followed her closely behind. She took us to a completely different tunnel. This one went further down in a spiraling ramp. We ran for at least 10 minutes and the ramp never leveled off. Torches lined the walls on both sides, giving us light. I wondered at just how many stories beneath the ground we were now. It had to have been hundreds. Finally, after what felt like over a mile of descending, we came to a cave system that seemed to glow within its own inner blue light. Stalagmites and stalactites made sharp spikes on both sides of us. Mary pointed to a small door to the right that had been hewn from the rock itself. It had a symbol on it that I had never seen before, resembling a spiral with an arrow pointing up. That means food, Mary said in a hushed voice. There are a few of these rooms, though many of them have traps in them. She pushed through and showed us a room filled with cans and bottles. Most of them were empty and thrown to the side, but I saw dozens more were still unopened along the metal shelving of the back wall. Adam and I quickly shut the door and looked at the food supplies. I realized that I was starving. All of the running and adrenaline had exhausted me and just the thought of food made my mouth begin to water. We quickly opened up some cans of tuna fish and found some bottles of soda in the corner. While all three of us ate and drank as quickly as we could, we tried to formulate a plan. Do you know where the center of the labyrinth is, Mary? Adam asked her. She had seemed to take more of a liking to him than to me. It wasn't uncommon as Adam was a very talkative, selfless, and gregarious person, while I was more of an introvert and a loner. To my surprise, Mary nodded yes to the question. A slim ray of hope entered my mind for the first time in what felt like forever. Adam's eyes sparkled too, as he was excited by the prospect of getting closer to escape. We are heading there now. She said while scooping out little bites of plain tuna fish with her disgusting fingers and forcing them into her mouth. 
There are less traps at the center, but no food or drink. That's why Daddy and I always stayed closer to the edge, where we could get long pork. She smiled at this. You mean people, I said. And Adam shot me a glance, telling me to shut up. But Mary only smiled wider. Oh yes, otherwise I would have starved months ago. We have to stretch our food supplies here. But I grew to like the taste of long pork. Especially when it was dried and cooked. It reminded me of jerky. She sat and licking her lips. Mary, how long have you been down here? Adam asked. Mary only shook her head. Uh, must have been years, she said frowning. Looking at her sickly emaciated frame, the rags that she wore that had once been clothing, the way that her shoes were falling apart, I thought she was probably right. And then we began to hear footsteps outside of the door. We all stopped speaking instantly. Adam and I grabbed our weapons and started standing ready to fight. I motioned to Mary and Adam nodded, giving her the dagger back that we had stolen from her father. I wondered whether it was a smart move, seeing as she was clearly insane and might just stab us in the back to try to eat us, but I had a feeling that we didn't have much of a choice. An old quote ran through my mind. Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. And I almost felt an urge to chuckle, thinking just how true that really was. Something slammed against the door, sending it flying open. Adam and I waited a moment, Mary behind us. We were out of view of the door, but standing next to the threshold so that, if somebody walked through, we could attack from the side as soon as they stepped a foot into the room. It was what ended up happening. As the surgeon in the mask had entered, a scalpel raised. I tried to bring my weapon down on his head, but he was amazingly fast, ducking at the final moment. The sword whistled harmlessly overhead. He stuck his scalpel into my leg, making me yell out in pain. But Adam took the moment of distraction to bring his mace smashing down on the surgeon. The surgeon's head erupted and bits and pieces of it flew into my mouth as well. I started wiping furiously at the coppery taste and my lips and I started spitting. The burning pain from my leg rose up and looking down, I saw rivulets of red soaking into my blue jeans. I hoped that it hadn't hit an artery. We need to go now. Mary hissed at us and we both nodded. I was significantly slowed down now, hobbling along beside them, but the pain wasn't as bad as I had expected. I figured it had been an extremely lucky shot to avoid crippling me or causing me to bleed out down here. Adam ripped off a piece of his t-shirt and made an impromptu bandage, tightening it with knots. We heard more footsteps behind us, and all three of us found huge stalagmites to hide behind, peeking out in the subtle glow of the cave. We saw a few of the faceless humanoids pass us by, one wearing an expensive black suit and the other two wearing hiking clothing and windbreakers. Their faceless heads seemed to ripple, expanding and contracting. As I wondered if it was a result of them breathing through their skin, I wondered just what they were in fact. Mary nodded at us to keep going forward and we did. I could hear shrieks ahead of us. 
Looking around a bend in the cave, I saw two middle-aged men trying to fight off the faceless monsters. One of them had a pistol. He raised it to the chest of one of them, blowing its heart out. The monster fell back, but another one grabbed him from behind. And the other living monster quickly knocked out the second man. And then the two monsters worked in tandem, one reaching out to the conscious man's chest, his fingers gently touching the fabric of the shirt. And then with unimaginable strength, he began to pull the man's skin and bones apart. The man shrieked, but the other monster had his arms pinned behind his back too tightly for him to fight back. Soon, they had his heart out of his chest and the man's head had slumped to the side. One of the monsters put it up to its blank head. The head appeared to split open in the middle, thousands of tiny black lamprey teeth showing for a moment as he ate the man's heart. They let the man's body fall to the side and the other monster repeated the process with the unconscious man, eating his heart as well. And then they continued forward, the only remaining sign of their passing being three bodies with massive holes in the chest. Mary, Adam, and I began to move forward again. Countless footsteps were now approaching from behind and we all began to run as fast as we could. Soon the cave system ended and we came out in an ancient oak forest. The two monsters were waiting for us there, and Adam and I walked forward attacking. I quickly dispatched mine, but the one attacking Adam was too quick. The monster had gotten behind Adam and was about to grab him by the neck when Mary had jumped in, stacking her dagger into the spot where the abomination's face should have been. It gave an ear-splitting shriek as its head opened up and it fell back. But the distraction had allowed dozens more monsters from the cages to reach the end of the cave. We all ran for our lives. This way, Mary said, panting. She took us down a small deer trail and we found an ancient stone cellar with a heavy door attached. We all got in and found that it had a latch to lock it from the inside. Adam stuck his maze through the latch just as a monster had approached from the outside, beginning to smash at it. I heard dozens of more footsteps from all around us, and I knew that we were surrounded. Well, this is it, I said sitting down and sighing. There's no getting out of this one. We can't fight off all of them out there. Mary sat down too, humming to herself, but I noticed that tears were now flowing down her face. Adam only grinned at me, taking his backpack off. Did you forget? Adam asked. I grabbed that book when we first got in here. I told you guys my instincts were screaming at me to take it. He pulled the large, ancient tome out with the title, The Angel of Death, written on the front. Drops of blood constantly dropped out the front of it. The voice of Set began to vibrate and reverberate around us. Will you give your souls yet, friends? He asked. There's no need for all of you to die like sheep led to the slaughter, for I am the good shepherd, and I hate to see my sheep ripped apart by the wolves. He laughed at this. Adam ignored the voice coming from nowhere and everywhere and opened the door. The pages were blank at first, but then text written in blood began to appear. The book was upside down from my point of view, but Adam quickly read it, frowning. Mary, let me see the knife, 
Adam said, putting out his hand. Mary handed it over. According to the book, all I need to do is say a prayer and carve this name in my arm, and this thing will come to us and save us all. The door to the stone cellar began to shake more violently, as more bodies seemed to show up by the minute. You better hurry up then, I said to him. We don't have much time until those things break through. Fools, the voice of Set screamed. You should not open that book. Do you wish to bring the Watcher to your world? The Watcher will kill the sun, destroy the moon, blot out every star. The Watcher does not care at all for your lives. He continued to ramble, but we all ignored it, and Adam began the ritual. The poem appeared in red on the pages, and he began to read it, holding the knife over his left arm. An old man dies, a newborn breeze. The bugs feast, the infection sees. Winter enters and never leaves. The lone dissenter lives and deceives. The angel of death arises again, the eternal cycle of a bloody rain. As he read the last stanza, he also cut the name Israel into his left arm, wincing for a moment as the sharp knife did its work. And then he held his arm above his head, the blood trickling down, forming and reforming into large and larger rivulets, and then turned sharply and aimed directly at his heart. As soon as the first drop had reached the center of his chest, appearing to defy gravity as it rolled down and back up his chest, an amazing and horrible thing started to happen. Adam's eyes began to emanate a soft, glowing white light, and he began to float above the ground. Behind him, I saw dozens of visions of his floating body splitting off, as if I was looking into a mirror image reflected into another mirror image. The dozens kept going until it looked like hundreds, and then millions and then eternity, disappearing into a point at the horizon. Each of the bodies began to fade in and out and then eyes started to come into view, swarming and morphing all over these countless bodies. Soon I couldn't see anything that once had been Adam. His entire body was covered in soft, glowing white eyes that stared out in all directions at once. And then the billions of eyes and the eternal bodies all turned to me at once. And I felt an impending sense of terror and doom of an intensity that I never imagined possible. Who calls on me? A soft voice said from everywhere and nowhere at once. It slightly shook the walls and floor. I tried to look away but I couldn't. The eternal copies of Adam's body all collapsed into one in a single moment, and I was back to just staring at the spot where Adam's body had been. The endless hallway of mirror images disappearing instantly. Mary stood up, backing away to the very edge of the cellar. I knew that I had to answer even though all those staring eyes seemed to bring me to the brink of madness. We need your help, Azrael, I said. The angel laughed as the door began to splinter. I could see claws and hands reaching through, feeling around for what held it shut. One of them began to sneak close to the mace and shake it loose. And why would I help you? He asked, the voice seeming to shake the ground with every syllable. Because, I said, pointing, Set has released those things to kill your host. 
And without a host, I have a feeling that you'll be going back to whatever otherworldly prison you came from. The eyes of the angel all turned towards the door as the mace fell out and the door swung open. Dozens of monsters began to pour in. The floating angel laughed at this, raising his arms. Huge thorns and spikes began to shoot out of the leaves and dirt, wrapping around each of the monsters and dragging them into the ground. Within seconds, their screams had all ceased. No one stood there. From behind me, I heard another deeper voice. Set's fiery eyes were embedded into the stone wall that he stepped out, his black poisonous body appearing at once. He and the angel of death stared at each other for a long moment. Mary grabbed my arm and we began to back out of the stone cellar. As we got to the threshold, Set raised one arm and the ceiling began to collapse on Ezreal. Massive blocks of stone fell on his head, and within seconds he was buried. The cacophony of the collapsing structure made my ears ring, and Mary and I began to sprint blindly ahead. As I looked back, I saw the stones go flying up in the air, Ezreal floating up from the place where the stone cellar had stood. Set was also flying, glancing down at his enemy with hatred. Ezreal raised an ethereal hand and a huge oak tree was ripped out of the ground and went flying in Set's direction. He easily blocked it, flying higher into the forest and letting it pass harmlessly underneath them. Up ahead, I saw a hatchway in the middle of the forest. It didn't look like it belonged, but I knew that we had to find somewhere to hide. As Set and Azrael fought, I ran up to it opening up and what I saw astonished me. I was looking down into the hatchway, but on the other side, I was looking up through the spot next to where Adam and I had parked my car. I looked back and saw Azrael and Set throwing fire and lava at each other, setting the forest alight around them. I nodded at Mary and she jumped through without hesitation, and then I followed. It was a disorienting experience going down through the hatchway only to find myself crawling up out of a secret dirt door a few feet in front of my car. As soon as I was out, the door slammed shut behind me and it turned back into flat dirt. I looked around and saw that there was no longer a gas station there, just endless trees. I brought Mary to the hospital and then I went home, wrapping up my own wounds with a first aid kit. I didn't know what to do about Adam. After washing and sleeping, I decided to go to the police station the next day and report Adam missing. I told them that I had brought him home from work, but that I hadn't been able to get in contact with him since then. They ignored my report, saying that if he still hadn't shown up in a couple more days, then I should come back. I have a feeling that I will likely never see him again. His sacrifice allowed Mary and me to escape that horrid place, however. I hope that he's still alive somewhere, and that maybe he will find a way out, just like we did. But whenever I sleep now, I hear Adam screaming. In my dreams, he always has pure white irises and pupils, and he always looks around with terror, asking where he is. Behind him... I see an eternal sky covered in ethereal, glowing eyes. 
Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.